Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. In this podcast, we continue our adult faith formation series in the book of Isaiah, I Am Doing a New Thing, led by Mark Gravrock. The discussion in this episode was recorded on February 13th, 2022. And now, here's Mark with an opening song. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. You are my servant, you are my chosen. You are the child of Abraham, my friend. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. And I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong right hand. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for gathering us together again this day. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people throughout the ages, for your faithfulness to us now, this day. Thank you for this gathering and for your faithfulness in the life of each person here. Open your word to us this day, Lord, and open us to what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're at the midpoint, the fourth of our seven sessions together. Let me just recap a little bit. Some of you haven't been with us all the way along, uh, joined, have joined us midstream. We're focusing on 2nd Isaiah, that is chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah, which are focused on the exiles in Babylon. They've been there captive in Babylon for four to five decades, something like 48 years perhaps. Uh, soon their deliverance is about to arrive. God's going to break them free and bring them home to Jerusalem again so they can rebuild their lives and start over again. And we chose this, path, this section of scripture intentionally because of where we have all been in the last couple of years. In a pandemic, in an exile of our own, in a time in our country that feels like it's all fallen apart, in uh, all kinds of stresses and changes that have thrown, thrown us into exile, into some kind of a wilderness time. And we are so longing for God's new thing, longing for things to break open again. This section of scripture is one where God's saying, you've been caught for all this time, and I'm about to break you free. And it's going to be my doing, not yours, that breaks you free, but I will do it. And as you go home to resume your life, it's not going to be what you knew from before. It will be a new thing. It will be something gracious and good, but not exactly how you remember it. I think that's a, it's a fitting portion of scripture for where we are individually and corporately these days. So the first half of this chunk of text in Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 48, really focuses, there's kind of a polarity between uh, Babylon, in terms of location, between Babylon, where they're captive, and Zion, Jerusalem, back home, lying in ruins, waiting for them. For these first nine chapters, up through 48, really focus on Babylon. And then from starting, uh, starting after that, in chapter 49, the focus will shift back to Zion, waiting, back home, waiting in grief uh, for her children to come home to her. Uh, we'll see something today about, the, about some of the images Isaiah uses for these two cities. But where we are today now is the, kind of the final section of the Babylon half, chapters 46 to 48. Um, and the chapters are going to focus in on what holds us back, what's keeping us from moving forward, if the opportunities are there to move forward. I think it's a challenging and an enticing section of scripture. Let me focus your attention first then on today's picture. The image Mark is referring to here is a painting by William Stower. A link to the artist's website where you can view this painting is available in the podcast description. And now, back to the discussion. Uh, so actually, for the sake of ourselves and for anybody listening on podcasts, let me ask you to describe the picture before you do anything else. Somebody describe it for us. It's really bold. 
It's really bold. Um, it, it has, um, I'm not, a, it, it, strong strokes, vivid colors. It's not, it's the opposite of watercolor. I think it's an oil. Um, strong strokes, vivid, vivid colors, not a, not a watercolor, it's, it's perhaps an oil. Of a man, I would say, thinking. A picture um, of a man thinking. And, and this, this individual is not young. Not young. So it is a portrait. It's a shoulders-on-up portrait of a man, not young, thinking perhaps. I think it's disturbing. You think it's disturbing? Why? Yeah. The the red around the eyes and that and yeah. Um, what whatever kind of either hat or um, head headgear or whether it's his head that's misshapen. Yeah, is that his head that's shaped like that? Or is it some kind of headgear? Or is it, what, what is that up there? And his hand. His hand and his mouth. Yeah, well, and how disfigured his hand is. How disfigured the hand is. When I first looked at it, it looked to me like an idol. Like an idol? Mm -hmm. Why, how so? Well, because it was so roughly carved. So and it took carved. me a while to see all the features. Okay. So at first I'm looking at this carved piece of wood. Mm -hmm. I, see, I see a man that's drinking something that might help him. Oh, oh is he drinking something that I might help him? That might, I see the whiteness and that as uh, like a snake that loses its sheds its skin. I'm oh, sorry, say that again. I, like a snake that sheds its skin. Like a, sh a snake see, that sheds its I skin. I see that that's all going to fall off of him, you know. <laughs> oh, something is sloughing off of him. Yeah, for new life. For new life, okay. Yeah, kind of like Paul, you know. Oh, you the know, scales like falling scales, from his eyes. Yes. So it looks like this, that's what I see. I see that uh, cool. he's in a state of transformation ah. from death. This is a good piece of art. You can see it that many ways. Yeah. That's just really good. It evokes lots of different things, doesn't it? He seems very stressed, but the hand motion, the, the hand there to me says emotion. Emotion. It's, it's like, if my hands are like this, it's like I'm dealing with this. I'm, I'm, I'm working with this. I'm not just passive. Okay. So he's stressed, and I agree about the red in the eyes. I think that he's been stressed for a long time. Yeah. And the, the, he's aged there mm -hmm. with this suffering. So there's a great deal of suffering show, shown, okay. but also determination. Mm. He's lived with stress, he's lived with suffering, he's, he's filled with emotion, but it's also determination and he's not just passive, he's facing this thing head on. Okay. I was amazed when I first saw it, I couldn't see, I thought it was just a bunch of paint that had been thrown up there. Mm -hmm. But it is amazing how much it has come into focus over the last four or five minutes. Isn't that interesting? And that hand, I had no idea that was a hand until about five minutes ago. And then it's just become a central part of the picture. Okay. Well, let me fill you. I don't know a lot about this artist or this piece of work. His name is, I think, Matthew Stowe, S-T-O-E-H, I think is right. Um, he's, he, um, my understanding is he has traveled, the, the artist himself has traveled through addiction and has journeyed through that and he's got several portraits of addiction, of addicted people uh, that are far more disturbing than this one is. Uh, and then he's got several self-portraits and this is one of his self-portraits. Um, and what exactly about his own life he's depicting here we're, we're, we're kind of uh, resonating in different ways ourselves with it. That's something of the background of this. That's about all I know, actually, of, of the artist and his work. Uh, it's powerful. And this is, um, as I mentioned, this is one of the milder pictures.
Yeah. You thought it was a glass of beer in his hand? Okay. Sure. Or a cup of coffee? Doesn't look like coffee. No, it doesn't look like coffee. Okay. Um, let me shift. We'll, well, I'm going to keep the image up there and we can come back to it as you will. You may have occasion to. Um, back when I was in seminary, training to be a pastor, this is a previous century when this, when this took place, a long time ago. In one class, I had an occasion to write a paper on Israel and the nations in Second Isaiah, that is Isaiah 40 through 55. That was a pretty darn good paper, I think. I was pretty proud of it. And it, um, I learned a lot, and I felt good about how I put it together. There was one piece, we kind of skipped over a passage back in chapter 44. There's, most of this is in poetry. Suddenly you get this long prose passage where Isaiah is mocking the idol makers. And you might remember seeing that passage. It goes on and on about how the guy goes out and gets a hunk of wood and brings it back, and he shapes it and carves it, and he cuts it in two, and Part of it he shapes into an idol, into his god. In the other half, he cuts up his firewood to use for burnt, to baking his bread and his heating up his food. And so here's this is my god. Part of it is uh, part of it's an idol, and part of it is this is what I use to heat my food. And he's laughing at the the stupidity of idol makers. And throughout much of this, these chapters of Isaiah, there's mockery of the idols. They can't move. They just sit there. They don't do anything. Come on. Well, in my naivete in that paper, I wrote, made a comment. It looked to me like um, Israel is, because they can laugh at the idols like this, they must clearly be beyond, be beyond that temptation itself, that they're no longer being, being tempted by such things. I wrote that in the paper. And my teacher, Dr. Terry Fretheim of Great Pain, uh, just wrote a comment in the margin saying, the polemic indicates the practice. You know, why mock it unless it actually is a real temptation? You don't mock something, you don't... You think about some of the late night comedians and stuff like that, you don't mock something unless there's a real thing to mock, a real reason to have to grapple with it. So Israel was not beyond this temptation. They were, they were tempted. And in particular, here they are, their God lost the war 40, 48 years ago. Yahweh lost for all that they could see. Babylon's God's won. Here they are in Babylon, they've been captive for decades, and the, the glittering religion around them is constantly in their presence, in their face. And the gods of Babylon are a real temptation. I have no doubt that massive percentages of the Israelite population just sold out and became Babylonians and worshiped their gods. So on one level, we're looking at, in, this chapter of, in these chapters of Isaiah, we're looking at idolatry and God versus the gods, and how that plays out. You might also recall that throughout these chapters we've seen snippets of a kind of a trial scene that God is inviting the people to. Uh, it's all, um, it's not an actual trial scene, it never actually happens, but it's, it's, um, it's a, poetic, a poetic illustration where God is calling the nations together. Come on everybody, bring your gods with you, and bring your witnesses for those gods. And then my people, my deaf and blind people, will be my witnesses for me. And we're going to find out who really is God. We're going to test it out and solve this once and for all. And the criteria are going to be things like uh, which God was able to pr predict all of these events in advance. And which God says, I will set my people free, and then he pulls it off. Uh, which God delivers and which gods don't. And so there's this polemic about God and the gods. For the, for the exiles' sake. God's calling the exiles to break free from their bondage to these gods. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, when you think about the idol worshipers back in those ancient times, do you think the people who worshiped the idols actually believed that the idols were gods? I think that they were useful. I think they, they, I think they, they were useful. Useful. They, they were useful because you know nobody understood much back then. 
Sure. So, you know, if you had a God and you had a story, an origin story, or you had something else about them, and, and so they were useful. You, they explained things. Humans are curious and we needed, we needed to, to explain it. And if you had a supernatural thing that said, okay, how come the sun rises and sets? Sure. The same thing. Well, it's a God who pulls his chariot across the sky. Okay, we got an thing. So the stories of the gods um, are useful for explaining what's going on yeah. in the world. And, 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 and we do that too. Going on. So, sure. Yeah, I think that they were kind of useful. If, and then maybe you could persuade the gods to get something. Yeah. Can you butter them up? Can you persuade them one way or another? That's, <laughs> there's a whole stream of, of, of polemic about religion going on through scripture about that very matter. Oh, and Christians have tried that. Yep. You know, if you pray just the right way, if you get the right formula in your prayer, and you check all the boxes in advance, well, God will certainly answer your prayer in the way that you expect, right? What's that thing about in the box goes the chain, um, you know, from the hell of your As soon as the coin in the coffer springs, another soul from purgatory springs? Yeah. I mean, you can buy your way out. That's uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Okay. Yeah. Sure. How about the how about the idols themselves, the statues, the representations? Uh, it, uh, uh, Buddhists have the statues of the of the Buddha, mm -hmm. but I don't I don't think they believe that that statue is the power that it represents. I mean, just in, in, to me, it's more similar to the way we look at a cross. Of, Mm. Especially a crucifix. Okay. For a Catholic with the crucifix, it they don't believe that the Jesus on that symbol. It, it's a symbol of something. Yeah. So, like Carolyn says, it's the story um, that has the power. Yeah. So the so story has the power, and it's embodied in an image. So I connected with the culture mm -hmm. and the whether you're whether it's your own culture or it's somebody else's culture that you're considering being assimilated into, mm -hmm. there are always these other gods. And so there is always the struggle between the God the creator God. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> the biblical God and the gods right. that we live with okay, and that would tempt us. And so I don't know if you could hear everything she was saying. She started off talking about uh, Buddhists and statues of the, of the Buddha and it's very right. unlikely that most Buddhists actually think that statue is the Buddha and is the power of the Buddha himself. It, it represents, it ties into it, 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 it focuses attention, it opens them to that, that whole story and the power of that story. Or uh, in, in Christian churches, the cross, or particularly the crucifix. We don't think that crucifix is actually Jesus on the cross. It's a representation, it's not an idol. We don't worship it, but it draws our attention and focuses our devotion in one way or another. Okay. And, and then going on to say that wherever there's always perennially the struggle between the, the actual creator God and all the various gods that we have that kind of get in the way, of, but maybe helping, helping pieces, but then get in the way. That's kind of where I was going because for so many uh, centuries we had a vision of Jesus being white and blue eyes and um, and Mary with her blue it always has to be a blue robe yep. and um, and now um, looking at some of the artwork from other countries and, and everything that's all over our church it's beautiful that we can see representation of God and Jesus in a different form than when I grew up yeah. One of my favorites that way was, and did anybody eons ago take the Bethel series Bible study? This is really dating me. Yeah. This was 
I was a child when it was popular. And I, I took it as a high schooler, actually. And, um, my favorite picture in the whole Bethel series was this picture of Abraham and God blessing the world through Abraham. And Abraham is as Scandinavian as you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was written in Wisconsin. Come on. <laughs> so maybe contextual, maybe just blind, whatever. <laughs> okay. I, I think you're right. I think it may be that among some of the simplest folk, um, some folks might have actually believed that the gods were somehow embodied in those statues. Uh, but most folks, they weren't, they weren't stupider than we are. They were the same kind of folks we are, and they knew. Um, but the power of the, the image itself has power. And, the, and that's part of, the, part of the struggle that we're getting at in this section of Isaiah. Um, I was just, there, even within our, within our own traditions, there we struggle with what is the holy and what are the boundaries of the holy. And you might, some of you might be aware that in older Lutheran traditions there are different different streams of Lutheran tradition, particularly around the, how you handle the elements of the Eucharist um, and how you, you know, it's this is this is the vehicle that conveys the body and blood of Christ to us. Um, is it just within communion that that happens, or do you have to take care of the elements separately, especially afterwards? Christ doesn't ever spell that out. The Bible doesn't ever spell it out. Well, there's one stream, at least, of Lutheran tradition where um, uh, churches, sacristies, will have a special sink with a pipe that goes straight into the ground and not into the sewer, and that sink is used for cleaning out the communion vessels. So it just simply goes into the earth and not into that place where your poop goes and all that, okay? My dad was pastor, we got to this new town, and I was nine years old in western Minnesota, and uh, this church had one of those sinks, and that was not our tradition. And my dad went and, in front of the altar guild, washed his hands in that sink. <laughs> we were there two years. <laughs> We have we have our idolatries on all kinds of levels. Don't we? <laughs> well, in actually in the church I was at before here, I was on altar guild, and um, we took the wine, the unused wine in the chalice, and we poured it on the rhododendrons on either side of the back door. And I thought they are the healthiest and the most drunk. I was going to ask, did it actually help the rhododendrons? Yes, it really fertilized those rhododendrons. These are the flowers of Christ given for you. <laughs> Acid in the soil. Oh, there you go. Hmm. Would you turn, please, to Isaiah 46? And would someone read for us, please, the first four verses? Isaiah 46, 1 through 4. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and cattle. These things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to the gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. I'm sorry, how far do you want to be? Exactly that far. Okay. Thank you. Uh, let's get clear, first of all, who in, what in the world are Bell and Nebo? Anybody know? Guessing that they're idols. Guessing that they're gods or idols. Yeah, that's, that's actually all you need to know. A little bit more information. Bell is a title. It's the same, it's kind of a Babylonian version of the Canaanite name Baal. Baal and Baal, it just means Lord. So you can even use that term for Yahweh, Lord Yahweh, but it's, it became kind of taboo after a while because it was also the name of a particular Canaanite god. But so it's, um, there's a polemic against the word Baal in the Bible, but this is the Babylonian version, Baal. It simply means Lord, and that Lord happens to be Marduk, 
Marduk is the chief Babylonian god, the chief god of the city of Babylon, uh, the kind of, their kind of main god. So that's the one who supposedly defeated Yahweh in battle. Yahweh, uh, Marduk, Bel, defeated Yahweh and carried off the people into captivity. Nebo, uh, Nabu, is actually more accurately what the Babylonian is, like in Nebuchadnezzar and some of those king names. Nabu is um, Bel is Marduk's son. He was the god of uh, of writing and also of of, um, of crops. I don't know how those two came together. And he was so he was the a little underling god, but was actually far more popular in Babylon than Bel himself. So these are t the two main most popular gods of Babylon: Marduk and Nabu. That's who we're talking about. As you heard and read the passage, what did you notice? What struck you? What stood out for you? It's kind of saying that the gods are, especially the first two, um, you know, they're just being carried along. They're not affecting. Bell and Nebu are not affecting things. Okay. They, they are just kind of, you know, they go along, and if the donkey stoops down, so do they. And they yep. just kind of, you know, they can't do anything. They just go along for the ride. They just go along for the ride. They have to be carried. Yep. Yeah, that's the first point that Isaiah is making, that these gods, they don't do anything. They have to be carried here and there. Now, of course, it's another matter whether the actual, if there were an actual god Marduk that, that, that represents and Nabu, do those powers actually do anything or not? But Isaiah is just kind of taking the polemic right at the literal level and using that as a way to talk about the, the truth beyond that as well. So here are these gods that have to be carried around and can't do anything. That image in uh, verse 1, no, verse 2, uh, they stoop, they bow down together, they can't save the burden, they themselves go into captivity. Um, the Babylonians and others like that that conquered other peoples would often cart the gods of those other peoples off into captivity. Just take the statues with them and store them away someplace. That's what a, what a beautiful way to say, we're totally in charge of your life. We took your god and we put it in the closet or whatever. And maybe talking about something like that, that that's going to happen to Babylon's gods now when Persia conquers them. Uh, and maybe something else too. Uh, years ago when my daughter was uh, doing a study term in, on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean, I got a chance to go visit her. And while she was in class, um, I got to wander the streets of the capital city and stumbled across a procession that was going on. This is a, an old style Catholic community um, and it was some, I don't even remember which, which saint was being honored that day, but there was a parade through the streets around the big cathedral square and back in again. Several men, I bet it was 40 men, are carrying this huge, huge platform, a gigantic a platform, maybe half the size of this room, um, that has this has the statue. I don't know if that one was Mary or if the, which, which I don't remember now who, who the statue was. Uh, festooned with flowers and all kinds of decorations. It was enormously heavy. I watched these guys, you know, it was 40 some men carrying this thing on their shoulders and they're all of them straining, barely making it around the block. Um, I don't want to mock the, their piety. I, I have no doubt that this was a, an honest, sincere, um, religious, powerful event for them. But I, I think of that one, and at that point, me, uh, Mediterranean Catholicism has really tied into a religious culture that's much older in that part of the world, where processions of the gods and carrying the statues of the gods in procession is part of typical celebratory worship. I believe it was part of Babylon's worship. Now, so whether these gods are being carried off into captivity or whether they're simply being carried in procession, and Israel, the exiles are watching these parades, powerful, glittering things. Uh, either way, the polemic ends up being the same. Isaiah's saying, guess what? Those statues can't move. They have to be carried. And if the, if the men carrying them happen to stumble, or if the animals that they're being carried on happen to stumble, what happens to the god? It can't stop itself from falling. So what's the contrast? What about Israel's God? He's with us, but, but he's not 
he's not made into an idol. Yeah. He's just, you have to know that he's with you. He's with, and that's actually part of the whole thing about not the for, the forbidding of making an image of Israel's God is partly to avoid this whole thing. And what Isaiah Isaiah is saying that uh, all the remnants of the house of Israel have been born by God, yes, by their God, who will uh, who carried them from the womb even to their old age. Pretty God great. Israel is the one. That's yes. right. Yes. Yeah, so not only does is Israel's God with them all the time, but where the other gods have to be carried, this God does the carrying and has been carrying you since from the womb. And I love the, I don't think there's an intentional pun in Hebrew, but it sure works in English. Um, you have been born by me from your birth, from your birth and carried from the womb. Is it born with an E or born without an E? Either way, it works. God has birthed you from the womb, and God has been carrying you, bearing you, from the womb on and into old age. Uh, it's powerful. And he goes on to say, I will carry um, and will save. I will carry and I will save. Yep. The next verses go on in the same kind of vein. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me as though we were alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse, hire a goldsmith, make it into a god. Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, it stands there, it can't move. If anybody cries out to it, it doesn't answer or save anyone from trouble. So I think the point is clear that we have a God who carries and has been carrying us forever and promises to carry us all the way through to old age and to save us. Um, what's, what's Isaiah doing here for Israel? Why, why is Isaiah saying all this? Because it's easy to be tempted into looking at the idol and and thinking that it's a better religion because it has a visual aspect to sure. it. Sure, pretty sparkling. Yeah, Israel is being tempted by this other religion, by these other gods, and they're far more tangible, far more visual, far more present, clearly powerful. Babylon's been winning everything, obviously. Who wouldn't be tempted? Instead of this god who apparently lost the war and has God been around at all? Who knows? Just these words that keep being passed along. Seems pretty wimpy. They maybe would have fit in better too with the culture. So assimilation is a big temptation. Yeah, assimilation is always a big temptation. Let me make a shift then and ask, um, and take it away, take it from Babylonian times, take it to here and now. Um, we don't have statues like that that we're tempted to worship. We, those, those kind of idols we don't have around. Um, what other, if God wants to lead us forward from our time of bondage, from our time of exile in this pandemic, into a new time that we can't know what it's going to be like yet, what will hold us back from saying yes? Money. Money. How so? The use of money and, and uh, gathering wealth for a small number of people and more and more people are poor and, and the, the money is being gathered into a smaller and smaller group of people. Yeah. The disparity between those who have and those who do not is growing greater and greater. And as we move through this pandemic and out of it to a new time, we're, if nothing else changes, we're moving into a time where the wealth distribution is worse than it's ever been. And the, the, the hold of money uh, is a key piece of that. The other thing is that this, this um, pandemic 
pandemic has shifted us. It's made us habits that we did have been broken. Yep. And so, you know, not as many people are coming to church because they just got out of the habit. Sure. And so, you know, and do they notice that what's different in their lives? Well, not really. They just don't have any more time on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, maybe we can see, you know, I don't know, maybe we don't really need to go back to church. What did it do for us anyway? I mean, you know, I think there it, the power of habit is really important. And so when that habit is broken, it takes a lot to bring it back. So, um, and, and our society doesn't seem to need God. Doesn't seem to be. Doesn't seem to need God. I mean, it's some ways to need God. old, you know, when you were back in those times, you needed to pray to God because you didn't know if rain was going to come, so you needed to pray to God to get the rain to come. Yep. And, you know, you needed to pray to God because you needed him. And now it's kind of like, well, there's no forsake, you know? What's God? What, what do I need God for? Uh, the pandemic really has broken a lot of our habits and created new ones. And both sides of that may keep us from moving forward into what God has for us. Yeah, in some respects, you know, we, we may not have as many people sitting in the pews, but we have people online. Yep. We have a larger congregation online now, so that's good. But I was thinking also of the isolation. You know, everybody is focused on um, watching FaceTime or watching um, uh, Zoom or not even communicating with other people, just being in their own box. I mean, I, it's, it's really sad for me. Um, we had a really wonderful interfaith tea and um, we really enjoyed that experience with, yeah. the, with the women. And um, it's it hasn't been able to to be. Keshwar yeah. um, is very frightened about her grandson, and so she doesn't come out very much. And and uh, Leslie's so busy trying to keep her congregation going that um, it's really hard to focus on us getting together in real life. Yeah, and I miss that. Oh. And how do we be the people of God if we're not a community? Not in community with each other. Yeah. On the other hand, the disruption has also um, opened us, our time and mm -hmm. our energy and our thoughts to new questions and new yes. ideas, new ways of. of thinking and, and communication mm -hmm. with people we hadn't, I don't know, in, in some ways, like Diane said, internet has opened up some things that... It really has. It's, you know, a, it's a wild mix of, of old and new, you know, opening us to, and that's, I think, one of the temptations for us is as things finally open back up again and we can resume life like we want to resume it, it's going to be tempting for us to just want to create what was. And the pandemic has shattered that and also has opened up new options and new ways to think about it. Uh, so that as we move forward, there can be some real newness being injected into things. We need to be deliberate. Yes, we do. I want to expand this. Here's this image we've had up all along. Um, it's it's easy for me when it, for us when we're talking about idolatry to think about all oh, those foolish people in those other times that worship the images and all that. And thank God we don't have to we don't worship images. And oh yeah, there's some places where we get caught on little fetishes that we have of one kind or another. But we're pretty much free from that. I think that when the Bible talks about idolatry, the Bible is is talking on another level about addiction, about our captivity to all kinds of forces and ways of understanding and being that keep us from the fullness of who God is and what, and what God has for us. A piece of that is the, what you were talking about earlier, about this, um, 
very uh, male white god that we had, uh, or the, uh, the, uh, the Scandinavian Jesus, or the Scandinavian Abraham, or whatever. We have our mental images, our mental idols, our, our depictions, our way of, and really what's at the basis of all of that is understanding who God really is. We cannot know God unless God reveals God's self to us. And whatever God does reveal is never the fullness of who God is. It's just enough for us to get a picture. And I'm so grateful that the God that is revealed to us is a God of grace and a God of, of um, gift and of commitment and, and things like that. Um, I, think of, I think of Jesus walking, walking this earth. John's Gospel talks about him as here he is walking the earth doing God for us. Uh, demonstrating in his own life who God who God is, um, and here he is talking, being demonstrating himself to people who have been worshiping the true God all along. But we who've been worshiping the true God are still captive to our understandings and our tiny versions of who God is. And Jesus has to say to us, "You don't know this God. You don't know the Father unless I reveal God to you." It's kind of challenging that whatever we think we know of God, Jesus is there to say, there's more than you know. It's bigger than you think. Um, watch me in action. And there's a fight between um, what you've known for tradition yep. and prejudice, and I'm going to fight to the death to keep this prejudice and this God that I know um, separate from an open God, a loving God, a God who accepts everyone. Yeah. Um, and that's a big fight we have right now. You bet. So I would like us to think about what, what are the powers in our lives? What are the images or the forces that hold us in captivity, that we think we have to keep carrying along, or that we have been addicted to in one way or another and we can't let go of. What are those things that we carry? Um, that God says, my people, I've been carrying you from the beginning. Let go of those. Let me carry you to the future. I don't expect you to come up with anything on the spur of the moment, but. Well, I was thinking this morning again, once in a while I do this, um, in communion. Um, when I was growing up, only the pastor gave out communion. Mm -hmm. And only the pastor could bless the elements and they became uh, body and blood. And he had to distribute the elements himself for her. Well, yeah, himself. And it was a he. And, and it was, it was a he. he. <laughs> I was going to say herself then. And now we had, she mentioned that only two people came up right at the beginning for passing out the elements. But there's enough people in the congregation who know how to do that, that zoom, mm -hmm. there was enough people cool. to pass out the elements. And that's so much more inclusive. I think one of the challenges in our culture um, is the God of security and certainty. And yes. whether that's financial or other security and the American ethic of, you know, taking care of yourself and being in, you know, individually responsible and da da da, and that tension of being individually responsible and therefore securing your your and your plans of security, and I think that is um, a very powerful guide in our culture. Oh yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, both this both the God of security and the God of our own doing it, our mm -hmm. handling it ourselves. Yeah. Those are crippling gods. And with all of those, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the god we've been carrying around, whatever the 
thing we've been caught in and the, or the understanding we've been caught in, it's heavy. It's, it's, it's a life of suffering and bearing this thing that can't deliver us or that has addicted us to a point where we can't even see anything beyond what we've been seeing. This is real stuff that we're gripped in. Well, one of the things in the last couple of years that have really been coming through, I think, to many of us is how much of our society, our politics, and and our real, real estate and banking and so many things are structured around racial disparity. Yes. And and that um, the challenge of you know knowing that it's not consistent with uh, with the values we espouse. Okay. Except <laughs> those are the values we espouse. What about you know, the values, like, uh, about the individualism, the whole myth of, of individualism, that we can do it, that we achieve what we've achieved, we've achieved, you know, through. Um, and that the, the, the myth that there is equality there are equal opportunities and and all of that and so cutting through those you know I don't know whether you'd call them I don't know whether I'd call them idols but mythologies that we have lived with that, that are deep in our culture yeah mythologies is a good way to put that yeah. it's an, an assumptions that mm -hmm. um, I, I think what we're dealing with is the divisiveness in the country. And this morning on the news, I was watching what was going on in Canada, the, 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 the truckers, and what they're espousing, and what the governor of Florida keeps talking about, and the governor of Texas. Freedom. That's what we're talking about. Freedom. And you know, I've never considered myself to be, I've always felt I had freedom. That, that has never been an issue with me living in this country. But I do stop at a red light. Thank you. You know, and, and I, I do notice what the speed limit is and what I think maybe I can get by with. Uh, but this concept that, you know, being against the, the, the medical professions, professionals about protecting ourselves uh, from this epidemic that, that we're dealing with, uh, but my freedom is at stake. And I have a very difficult time accepting somebody who says, I'm not going to wear a mask or I'm not going to uh, get vaccinated because of freedom. But that's where we are. We have the best medical in the, in the, uh, you know, in, in, on the face of the earth, and we have the lowest percentage of people who have been vaccinated relative to uh, the rest of the Western world. Because we're free, yep. I, you know, I, and that's a conflict that I am, am having trouble dealing with. So a certain, a certain understanding, a certain version of freedom, a certain kind of depiction yeah. of freedom, is one of those idolatries. Yes, I. I and and a, senator, a certain senator yesterday, I heard him saying. That I would not about Canada. We won't let them take our God-given right to freedom. Mm -hmm. Like God gave us freedom, and they're trying to take it away from us. Yeah. And I said, "Well, yeah. like what God did to me, to give me freedom." Yeah. I want to just mention too that that, uh, and I don't know who who all is in this room and what your political. Um, persuasions happen to be. I certainly sense a different sort of 
leaning in this room than I did, did in rooms in Montana where we used to live. Um, <laughs> different flavor there, but there too it wasn't monolithic. Um, there was a time when we used to have political discourse that could talk about stuff across the aisle and could find, find points of commonality in between that we could agree upon and work together at that, that centrally shared value. We used, we used to be able to do that. Now this is one of the, our, our divisiveness now is one of those isms, one of those um, spiritual powers that has taken that is driving where we are right now. And underneath it all, I'm convinced, is fear. Fear, where underneath everything down below is fear, fear, fear. And so to have a God who says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. I'm carrying you through this. I, I was going to say, you know, this, this is a hinge of history. This is one of those times. And in every time when, when change, big change is staring us in the face, this happens. Yep. You can go back and you can say, or, or people feel like they can't get ahead. I mean, I'm just amazed. After, I mean, you go back and you look at history, and after the Black Death killed half of Europe, there were these huge riots because they wanted things to change, and the people at the top said, no, we want you to stay on the farm and be our service and not leave it and do it. But they were like, you know, no, we've got opportunities here. And there were these huge riots and, and fusses. And then after World War One, you know, the veterans marched. And they, they needed money and they needed things. And farmers, I mean, you go back through American history or you go back through history and the uh, Luddites, you know, it's like it's changing. We're going from these hand cultures where you can weave in the in this cottage and no one said you gotta go to the city and you gotta sit in this terrible thing. And, and it's changed. I fear, I can hit it. It's fear, we don't know what's happening. Yeah. And that's when you have all this fuss. It's, yeah. it's people like, oh, and I mean, I can't blame them. Sure, that's <laughs> pretty it's, natural. You don't, it's not, things are not going to be the same and we don't know what to do about it. We're almost at the end of our time, and before, before we get there, I want to at least mention chapter 47. We won't go into it. Um, it's, 40, chapter 47 has some problems because it's rather sexist. It's um, the image of Babylon as virgin Babylon, this young woman who's been now being literally stripped and stripped of everything. Um, it's, it's the prophet's way of saying Babylon's going down. Part of that's Hebrew grammar to start with, that cities are always female and sta states are male, just ma are grammatically masculine. And so it becomes easy to depict cities as women, one way or another. There is a, throughout these chapters, there is a polarity between, we just get Virgin Babylon here. Babylon is this woman who had, who's kind of been a powerful pam pampered princess and now is gonna be stripped of everything. And then as we move into further chapters, Zion, Jerusalem, will be this grieving widow, this grieving, um, this woman who's been cast off and lost her children and lost her husband and lost everything and now new promises are coming. We're gonna need to get beyond the sexist imagery of that just to get to feel for what, what God's promises are underneath the broken images that need to be adjusted to. Um, if you do read chapter 47, notice what Virgin Babylon has been saying all along. She says, I am and there is no other. That's exactly what God is saying. So she is, she is actually being another God and God's throwing that, one, that God down. Um, I just want to mention that the, and, the, and the patriarchal language difficulty going through that chapter. What I'd like us, like us to get under as we go on through is to, is to see chapter 46, the one we've been in, as these, these gods that have held us back. Our, our personal addictions and our idols and our, the places we've been caught. And chapter 47 is the powers that have been dominating us. The powers, the powers that be that control us and keep us from moving forward. That's both, both things are going on and both things keep the exiles from moving forward until you get to the end of 48 and God says, okay, it's time to go home. Let's leave it all behind and head on out. Um, so as we move forward into these chapters and think about our time, hopefully emerging from this pandemic sometime into a new life, uh, to, think of, to be thinking about the powers within us 
that are enslaving us and keeping us in bondage, and the powers around us, the, the big powers that be, that hold us in check and that keep shaping our society for ill. Um, and the message of God breaking through all of this, I'm the one who carries you. None of these has any power. They're all grass. Stick with me. We're going to move forward. But you're going to have to leave what you thought was, was, was the right way behind because I'm leading you into something brand new. Does that make sense? We've got a couple minutes before we need to quit. Any, any more comments or thoughts for today? Just thinking about Super Bowl Sunday and the, the idol worship of sports. And no, there's no idol worship there, is there? <laughs> 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 I don't think the Olympics going on at the same time. Um, and, you know, it's just, yeah, it's fascinating. It goes with money, too. Because yes. If, if you can afford a ticket to the Super Bowl today, you get to sit in the stands. Most of us get to watch it on our TV, which I think is more fun anyway. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but there is idol worship all over the place with our athletes and what we pay them. And, mm -hmm. How we, and, you know, they, they serve it there. It's only $3,000 a ticket, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that, that yeah, today, today's events embody so many of our cultural idols, don't they? Just kind of pull them all together. Well, <clears throat> I, I think that the uh, characterizing of the violence and hostility in our society as fear-based um, is a kindness. That, yeah. uh, uh, because um, I think that it's more an anger and resentment of which all goes along with fear, but I mean, it, it's, I'm not saying it's not fear, but it's an anger and resentment of losing privilege. Yes, yes. Of, of opening the society. Yep. And the people who are angry and resentful are saying, you know, we liked it in the 1950s. Yeah. We liked it in, you know, we liked, we liked slavery. We liked... But because, you no, know, those people actually, you know, were loved and they lived in our houses and they were family and, 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 and there wasn't really, it wasn't really bad like people talk about. And then they go on through history, American history, with similar kinds of watered down interpretations of everything and justifications. And there were so many things as our society went along that supported those justifications and all of that. And so letting go of that, you know, I would call it idols, the mythology, and letting go of that is for them scary. Absolutely. So there is a fear. But more than that, it's resentment. Yeah. And you know, I, I have a sister-in-law, for example, who proudly told the story of being in the home at Thanksgiving dinner, because, you know, with her, um, uh, with her daughter-in-law, at, at, at a home that was um, where, where the Politics was democratic in the sense of, you know, these people who made, were making big um, commitments to international, uh, promoting democracy in Eastern Europe, for example, um, kind of almost beyond what we think about. And she was, she was rude and announced, you know, her politics of resentment. And it's like she really enjoyed poking her post in the eye and, and told us proudly about this. I, I don't know how her daughter-in-law must have felt because, you know, I mean, it's... Well, she wanted us to know she had voted for Trump. I'll never forget that. Well, she wanted her hostess to know. 
And, and you know, it just, I, I think that there is, there is, it, it's very difficult because for people, for those of us who believe in, in listening to people and in harmony and in unity, um, that kind of hostility is something that we need to learn to be prepared to stand up to. And that's not easy. But I also think there's a huge cry from the other side because you haven't heard us. You have not heard us. You, you, you call us flyover country and a whole bunch of other things. So I think, I think learning to listen is, is, is what we need to do. We're moving into a wonderful conversation, and we're a couple minutes over time. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is all of this is so apropos. Um, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you that you know where we're trapped, that you know what's beneath our divisions, that you know what underlies our resentment, that you know how we're how afraid we are of change. You know, God, what's going on inside us. And thank you that you bear it, that you carry it, that you've been carrying it from the beginning. Carry us, Lord, not just us, but our opponents as well. Carry us on into the future that you have for us. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody. We'll do more next week.